This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... December 2019. As the rest of the world went about their daily lives, in China, the Wuhan city government was frantically tracing the origins of a mysterious virus. January 2020. A mandatory lockdown was ordered for 11 million Wuhan residents. Wuhan was once known as China's thoroughfare, connecting central China to the world. The city was now marked as the epicenter of COVID-19. Before the virus spread to other countries, the people of Wuhan were the first to brave the pandemic. Here are some of their stories. And what you just heard was a scene from Wuhan, Wuhan, an extraordinary documentary beyond the corporate media headlines and accusations in a human portrait of what really went down in that China city riddled with the coronavirus pandemic and a unique film collaboration between the East and West award-winning Canadian filmmaker Yang Chang, and in China, Gang Cheng, plus culture wars playing out in the UK, and our Writer's Corner special presentation, Letter by Letter, coming up. But first, I felt like what I wanted to show about Wuhan, to strip away the salacious headlines, the misrepresentation of what the Chinese were going through. Director Yang Chang is on the line from Toronto, to talk about Wuhan, Wuhan, his remarkable journey capturing a cross-cultural collaboration with Chinese filmmakers in hazmat suits filming in Wuhan as the pandemic was raging there, and what most spoke to him, everyday people there figuring out how to survive, figuring out how to help each other. Along with the racism that has touched him and his family personally as a result of the pandemic, Here's Young Chang. Hi, is it Prairie? Yes, hi. <laughs> hi, it's Young Chang here. Great. Awesome. Sounds great. Now, you're Canadian, so what inspired you to go to China to make this documentary about Wuhan and the victory over the pandemic there? I've been working on films about China uh, since the beginning of my career, uh, way back in 2007 when I made a, a film called Up the Yangtze. Um, so I'm Chinese-Canadian, uh, parents are from Taipei, Taiwan, and my father's from Shanghai. Um, so culturally and, and, and uh, my roots are connected to the, the country of China, uh, but I grew up in the West. So I have this feeling, and I think I'm not the only one that's uh, only a filmmaker from a, uh, a background like myself, where I describe my experience as being sort of out, outsider, insider, uh, one foot in, one foot out. Um, so uh, what drew me to the Wuhan, Wuhan film and the story about Wuhan uh, was that the material, so the material was extremely moving and very, very uh, um, human, if I can say so, like, so uh, essentially, I'm the co-director with a Chinese director named uh, Gongcheng. And, uh, and basically what happened was I was handed 300 hours of raw footage that he had filmed with, with his crew of 30 in Wuhan. What happened with Gongcheng was that he was there with his team, and they were about to film a nature documentary about the Yangtze River. Uh, uh, then the lockdown happened, and his entire crew were locked in Wuhan. Um, and so he's 
and and gratefully he's uh, he had the instinct to pivot and focus on uh, um, using his resources to make a film about the experience of everyday people uh, within the city of Wuhan. And what were the challenges for you filming right in the heart of this terrible tragedy? And yet you've made a film that somehow seeks and finds optimism in the midst of heartbreak. Please talk about that and the moments of humor there as well. So, um, so, so Gong Chung was there with his team, and I was actually working remotely from, from Canada, from Toronto, with the editing of the film. Uh, so, so what happened was, uh, from from what I know from the crew on, on the ground was that it was it was uh, very dangerous. Uh, the crew had to wear uh, you know hazmat suits and 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 were kind of had to kind of not only pivot the storylines but also had to pivot their their mental states of mind to focus on this very dangerous story of uh, of the coronavirus in the city. And I think. I think something that I noticed when I was looking through the 300 hours of footage that what spoke to me were these humanistic stories where, where it was about everyday people dealing with, uh, with their everyday lives. Um, just in, in as much as we have been dealing with the same themes. Um, you know, I've been in lockdown in Toronto. Uh, we were locked down here in, during the peak, um, uh, and we start, still are in what they're calling a stage two in Toronto. Uh, and I've been running the gamut of emotions. I've been feeling, you know, there's moments of laughter and tears and, and confusion and anger, uh, fear, you know, everything. And I felt like that is what I wanted to show in this film about Wuhan, the city, to strip away the, uh, you know, the, the headline, the salacious headlines, um, you know the the misre- the misrepresentation that uh, the Chinese were not going through the same things we were going through, and and essentially they were they were in the epicenter. Unfortunately, unfortunately the virus started in Wuhan, but that doesn't mean that everyone was maliciously trying to create a deadly virus to poison the world. I mean that was not what was happening, and I can tell you for sure that was not what was happening. As I look at this footage of of Everyday people, you know, the same as you and I, uh, figuring out what was going on, figuring out how to survive, figuring out how to help each other. That's what spoke to me so so emotionally was the was seeing how uh, so how how selfless uh, the Chinese were in Wuhan, and that's something that I wanted to bring forth in this film. Um, uh, you, you see one of the most moving storylines, the through. I would say the through line of the film is this, the, the relationship between the, the married couple whose husband is a volunteer driver for medical workers, uh, much against the wishes of his nine-month pregnant wife. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I mean, that conflict is so real to me. It's so, I think, so emotional and, and, um, and so uh, uh, nuanced. Um, I just really had to tell that story. And speaking of which, there's a lot of uncalled for hostility here towards China regarding the pandemic, seemingly out of this country's frustration and lack of approach to dealing with the virus. So how do people in China feel when they hear it called the China virus, or how do you feel? I mean, one of the reasons why I took on this project was because not a week before in May of 2020, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and I were accosted by a white man in Toronto and, uh, and experienced uh, anti-Chinese racism, which is horrifying. I mean, and that's never happened to me in a city, the most diverse city in the world, yeah. Toronto is known as, that this could happen around the block for me. Um, I grew up as a young Chinese kid in a small town in Ontario facing similar kind of bullying and racism, which I think ultimately made me who I am as a filmmaker, to be interested and curious about the world and to make films about my background in, and, and about Chinese people, to show, to, to, to show the humanistic side of, of people. And, and, um, and, and so um, I feel that uh, I think in China, the Chinese uh, are, 
the mentality is different. But I think what I'm trying to do in this film is show that uh, China is not a monolith. You know, not there are individuals. You know, one one point three billion individuals who live their own lives and make their own decisions and fight back against things they feel are not right. And you see it happening with the the mother and son in the film who are uh, put into a temporary quarantine hospital. You know, it doesn't make her that happy, but she knows she has to do it, uh, much to her chagrin. I think in China, people did what they had to do um, because they just they follow the they understand the need to follow those rules. uh, And and it'd be very hard to break those rules. But also there is a selflessness to it. There's a a sense of of uh, of community that is I think I I don't see necessarily um, outside uh, you know, in other places around the world. But I, I do feel that when you see people working together, and it happens in America as well, you know, uh, my wife is American from Minneapolis, you, you see communities coming together to help each other. And I think that is the, uh, the, the objective of this film, is to show the, the great lengths we go to survive as a, as a, as a, as a, as a human species to survive. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And have you heard any reactions to similar experience, well, not experiences, but the name calling? Have there been reactions of the Chinese people to that? What they're saying in this country about them, the China virus, et cetera, which is tinged with racism? You know, on the flip side, what China, what, you know, China is, uh, you know, there's, it's a homogeneous society. There's not a lot of, uh, other there there are indigenous communities uh, but largely it's the Han people right they are the majority in China so it isn't a very diverse place um, I think what was happening in China was uh, there was this this reaction to foreigners coming into China the fear that the foreigners were bringing the virus uh, in fact what was happening was nationals returning from uh, from international places were bringing were potentially bringing the virus home so there was a lot of strict quarantining happening. Um, I have a colleague who just returned back to Beijing, and there is a policy where you have to go into a two-week quarantine funded by the government. They put you in a hotel and they feed you really good food, but they they, they hold you until you're cleared, uh, you know, after those two weeks. I don't think that's happening in many other places. Um, so I think the flip side of being called the China flu, I think, for the Chinese, uh, I think that is it's hurtful. I think it, it's hurtful when politics becomes uh, when politics obfuscates the the uh, the health problems of the virus. And I think uh, for Chinese, that is um, that is hurtful as well. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, I think my everyday friends in China feel. Uh, sensitive to that, obviously, and uh, my Chinese national friends who are in the West um, are very worried about the reaction. Um, but now we know that geopolitics is being played at a very um, hurtful level, and uh, and it's and and I think, well, <laughs> if I may say, let's just hope we get through November third and uh, and see what happens then. And there are moments as well that may surprise U.S. audiences, as when one woman says, I know the government cares about us. Here many people fear going to hospitals because they can't afford the high price and stay home hoping to recover and end up dying instead. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? You know, it's so ironic. On the flip side of making Wuhan, Wuhan, I've made a short documentary called Pandemic 19. Uh, This one is co-directed with my wife, Annie, Annie Rollins, and it is about American frontline doctors, and it's told through their very intimate um, video journals uh, that they gave to us. And one of them happens to be my cousin, Dr. Brian Chang in California, who goes off to, to volunteer to work at a hospital in New York. Um, the other is a New Yorker transplant in, in Boston, uh, Dr. Virginia Brady, who works uh, for Beth Israel Hospital uh, connected to Harvard, She's a pulmonary specialist, 
And the other is a doctor named Dr. Esola, Pooja Esola, who is also in Boston um, working in ER. And each of them have a different story. And I learned a lot from their experience. What I learned was that um, in their stories, Dr. Esola uh, is let go from her job as a full-time ER doctor, which is unheard of in many places in the world uh, where a secure job like uh, in the medical field could be so vulnerable in a private healthcare system like in America. And I think that that example speaks uh, to me very deeply that there's a fundamental problem in, uh, in the way um, uh, America is uh, dealing with their healthcare problems. Um, I know that it's not the same for myself in Canada where we're, we're we don't have the fear of going to the hospital if we need to. Um, we, we have healthcare coverage, and it's and it's a human right to have healthcare coverage. Yeah. Um, so I, I and my wife, who's an American living in Canada now, um, uh, sees the stark difference between you know the world previous, where she was living in Minneapolis as an artist and not having proper healthcare coverage to to the kind of thing you have here. She was, you know, recently my daughter had an accident and she, um, she needed stitches. We needed to go to the hospital. Uh, and my wife was uh, confounded by the fact that we could easily just walk in to the emergency and make something happen. And, she's, and she tells me constantly how, um, how she has to remind herself that it's, it's not a problem to step into a hospital to seek help and, or to see your doctor. Uh, where, whereas in America, it was different for her. And another aspect in your film that may surprise audiences here is psychologists are an important and essential part of the medical team. One in the film, reaching out as mm-hmm. they go on their rounds, she reaches out and asking if anyone needs help for anxiety or, quote, just being sad. You don't mm-hmm. have to ask me. Everyone here needs therapy, including me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you... I love that. I love the character of Dr. Zhang, the psychologist. I mean, from a Chinese perspective, this is also very, very new. Um, you know, in China, uh, psychology and therapy does not really exist as an everyday thing. People don't seek out that, that, um, that, that avenue for help. And so for me, it was interesting to see that this was being implemented into the, um, into the care, uh, the health care, in this temporary hospital that they had created for um, mild cases of COVID. And so um, I, I think that that was, uh, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's so important. I think mental health, especially in a lockdown, is probably one of the major factors in our in our in our uh, ability to get through and to be able to express how we're feeling inside is very important. Um, so I think from the Chinese side, it was, it, it is, it is revealing of a change in attitude about mental health and mental awareness, uh, mental health awareness, um, uh, which I found uh, very, very interesting. Now I wanted to ask you, you collaborated with Chinese director Gan Chang on the film. Yeah. And he's described as a graduate of the People's Liberation Army Academy of Art. Please yeah. describe that artistic venue and how it may indicate your diverse international perspectives brought to this yeah, project. It's, it's super interesting. Whenever I talk to people in the West who aren't too familiar with the way things work in mainland China, uh, I, I, it takes a while. <laughs> I would explain that in China... Um, uh, you can be an independent filmmaker. You can make what you want to make. Uh, Gong Cheng is known for his quite controversial films. Um, you know, I think uh, being a graduate of the People's Liberation Army Academy of Art does not mean that you're a propaganda, um, you know, spy or something like this. It just isn't the case. Um, there are obviously there are two sides, and, uh, and there are probably filmmakers who just graduate from the academy and and focus on propaganda filmmaking. You know, I'm sure there is, but I think uh, there is there are a handful of filmmakers who uh, more than a handful. There are 
there are many filmmakers who know that in order to make the films you want to make, you there's a, a method where you work within the system to make your own stuff, and um, and that's and 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 that's quite normal in China. Um, you know, producers and directors who uh, who work full time jobs with the with the with CCTV, which is the public broadcaster. But then also operate their own private, independent filmmaking companies. Um, and I myself, as a director who is an outsider, can go to China um, and make films the way I want to make them, and not have them compromised. Uh, because uh, I don't. I, I feel like it's just. I feel like the the method of making films in China is uh, is is different than other places in the world. But I think for this film, Wuhan, Wuhan, uh, and the way we've told this story, uh, it's it's a little more universal in that way that it is celebrating the humanistic, uh, more hopeful side of the experience through the pandemic. And other films, uh, and, and I can think of a couple, uh, like 76 Days, uh, for example, by um, uh, the director Ha Wu, are very important and, and, and illustrate a, a different side of the experience that are that that are uh, diving more into the political aspects of the experience which are important as well um, so I think for someone like Gong Cheng uh, who lives and works in China he is able to balance uh, the the different type of subject matters he's interested in so he'll make a nature film and then he'll make a, a maybe a more social issue documentary but do you feel with this project that you had any sort of different perspectives? He's an insider, and you're an outsider yeah. looking in. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't answer your question directly. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's why. <laughs> I think that's why I was um, brought in to finish the film and see it through. Essentially, uh, I was I treated the footage that uh, Gong Chung gave to me as raw archival footage. You know what I mean? That I didn't seek out uh, Gong Chung's. Um, uh, you know, uh, sort of co-directing opinion on what the film should be shaped into. In fact, what we decided was that we would keep it separate and that I would work more like uh, uh, a, a co-director who's looking at this footage and interpreting how it can be put together into a movie. And so I think um, I think it worked wonderfully, actually. Uh, um, usually as a director, you're, you're, you're in the field, you're following the story, you're filming everything, you make those decisions and you know what you like and what you don't like. And then later in the editing room, the job of the directors, is, at least uh, my belief, is that you have to kind of step back and let the editor uh, take over and find the truth of in, within the material. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's not for everyone, but that's often been my approach because I do know that I can be too close to it and I can't, I can't see, you know, uh, I can't separate uh, the trees from the forest, you know what I mean? So in this instance, I was given this footage and I was looking at it with fresh eyes. Um, and I was able to feel, uh, as I, I navigated the 300 hours of material, uh, where the story was. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm not sure that if uh, Gong Chung was doing it, it, it would have been the same result, which is very interesting and liberating as a as sort of experiment as well. Um, uh, so we ha and he so he had filmed nine different characters, all sorts of different walks of life, you know, uh, and that's too many to put into a 90-minute movie. Um, and I think what we've got here in our film is the the strongest, most emotional footage uh, within the material we had, and uh, and clearly the, the stories that have uh, the, the, the sort of an, more of an arc in in, in storytelling, and so. Um, well, I think what I bring to it is this, uh, not necessarily the outsider perspective, but more so a, um, a fresh-eyed perspective, uh, where I think given the amount of time we had to make the film, which was very little, uh, it's unprecedented. In fact, we finished this film uh, beginning in May. We finished in September. Uh, that's crazy for a 300-hour observational film. Usually it takes two years, um, at least eight months to a year to edit the movie, and we did it in a remarkable amount of time. And I think uh, it's because 
the producers were able to bring the resources we needed, which was a big team of editors, four editors in Los Angeles cutting the movie. Uh, we were driven not only by the deadline looming <laughs> in September, but also that, you know, passion was driving this project. You know, me coming off this uh, anti-Chinese uh, racist experience and then my crew feeling the need to, to, to put on this, push through a humanistic depiction of Wuhan because at that time it was all about Kung flu and the Chinese virus. And it still is through, through some particular people. And I wanted to fight back against that. I want to show the, the human side to this story. And you went into the project not knowing what the ending would be, and it resulted in a happy ending. What did that mean to you? And did the experience change you in any way, both as a filmmaker and personally? Yeah, I mean, being, well, firstly, I was working remotely, right? So I'm stuck in my little home office where I'm speaking to you now. And uh, I've got my laptop here and a monitor. And and, uh, and so I'm, I'm just, if you can imagine, I'm looking at this footage and the edit with my team in L.A. We're working, uh, you know, online. And, um, and, and to discover the story as we're weaving through it, uh, was a very emotional experience to re- to know that we had locked on to this theme, you know, the theme of uh, of humanism and 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 about the heartbeat of a city rather than the headline of a city, uh, the news headline of a city. That that this was driving us. Um, it helped to focus where the story should go, and and so when you have a human story like the couple who are dealing with a pregnancy during the pandemic, I mean, that to me is uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, drama. Um, there's so much weight within that story of, of life and death and the, the idea of bringing life within a time of, of extreme, um, you know, sickness and death uh, was very emotional. <laughs> it's hard for me to watch this film and, and not uh, kind of feel, um, uh, you know, I get teary-eyed. <laughs> I get teary-eyed, but I get teary-eyed in the in the sense that my I have a young daughter, and and I want to see her through this, you know, through this pandemic. I want to see her through, um, and 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 empower her to have the the knowledge and 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 ability to to deal with the challenges she's going to face as a young person in this new world, um, you know, and this new world not only dealing with something like uh, a pandemic, but also climate change. And um, and 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 things that are are taking us a step back in history. Like I'm I'm looking towards helping her see the light and the future, and and empower her to be able to to help lead and and change this world we're in. And has the film been seen in China? And if so, what have been the reactions? You know our. Um, some of our producing partners have seen it there in China. They uh, they put their stamp of approval on it. I think our long-term goal is to release the film in mainland China at some point. Um, uh, I'm hoping that I – and I think people's reactions is the idea that, oh, all we've seen in the news and in, and in you know, anything we've seen is always about the – you know the hospitals and the and the treatment and the and the and the pain of 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 this pandemic experience. But this film is is speaking to I think Chinese in a way that is is uh, more optimistic, uh, a sense of hope, a sense of of meaning. You know, I, I think we're at a place now internationally where where we need to see stories of resilience. And and um, I'm hoping that Wuhan Wuhan will fill that gap. Not only, um, you know, to show the world that uh, that we are all the same, on, and living in different places, but living under the same sky, as is the opening quote of our film. Um, you know, I think that that's really the objective. And please explain the significance of the title Wuhan Wuhan and why it's said twice. Uh, I think it's like a like a cri de coeur, you know, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like the sense of, of, in Chinese, I think it, it just, it feels uh, more uh, 
like a like a like a celebration of a place. You know, Wuhan is a historic city. It's a cultural hotbed. It's uh, it's um, you know the largest city on the Yangtze River. It's a thoroughfare for for um, for for economy, and uh, it has like a amazing art scene and a punk scene, music scene. In fact, the band who composed the music from our film is from Wuhan, and they're called Hualuan, and they've got such great music, and you can find it on uh, you know on on music sites online and I would encourage you to check in to their other stuff. They're just great. They're amazing. And I wanted to celebrate that. The calligraphy that you see in the movie in the opening title is by a Wuhan calligrapher. Um, we, our crew and our editors were made up of people from Wuhan. There was a lot of passion going into it. And so Wuhan, Wuhan, you know what I mean? It's, it's like saying New York, New York, you know, <laughs> it's the same feeling. And, and if I can add, you know, Steve James just recently finished a series called City So Real about Chicago, his hometown, and, and, and it lives and breathes and is an, ex, an expose of, of life in Chicago. And I wanted Wuhan to, to be that kind of story as well. Uh, Wuhan, Wuhan uh, is this kind of city symphony. It should feel like the, the city is, is a representation of the human experience. And I have one last question. Are you working on anything next? And will it be in China? Uh, that's a great question. In fact, I, I just uh, i am in pre-production for a film about hockey in China called uh, Red Stars, a uh, uh, working title. And it's about um, sort of the, I guess you could call it, remember the movie Cool Running? Yeah. Uh, okay. The Jamaica Bobsled team? It's sort of about, it's like the Chinese Cool Running. Um, so I'm really excited about that film. I've got a first fiction film that I'm making called Eggplant, also a Chinese story. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty jazzed about making stories about, uh, from the Chinese, uh, perspective and in China. Um, all with the same idea. Like, I think I'm driven by this curiosity to dig deeper into my cultural background. Um, and also that I'm, inspired by stories in China and I'm I'm inspired by uh, by telling these human stories. Okay, well thank you so much, Young Chang, for calling into our show and I will get the word out about this extraordinary film. Thank you so much for watching and for your uh, wonderful interview. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Prairie. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Wuhan Wuhan is premiering at the Doc NYC Film Festival this week. And next up on Arts Express, you'd better start buying all the history books you can now, because this is about to head into V for Vendetta territory. In our Culture Wars segment this week, not only about attacking Islam in schools right now, the UK plans to outlaw socialism history in the British education system. Here's political analyst and Arts Express contributor Jason Unruh breaking down the issues at stake. You know how capitalism is all about freedom and that there's the marketplace of ideas where anybody can believe whatever they want and if everybody believes it, somehow it's true, even though that would go completely against rationality? Well, uh, England has decided it's going to go even further. It has now been decreed in England, now specifically England, that... Anything coming from an anti-capitalist source is now no longer allowed. The discussion of anti-capitalism is no longer allowed. The discussion of anti-capitalist or socialist history is now no longer allowed. The Department of Education guidance issued on Thursday for school leaders and teachers involved in setting the relationship, sex, and health curriculum categorized anti-capitalism as an extreme political stance and equated it with opposition to freedom of speech, anti-Semitism, and endorsement of illegal activity. What it actually says is schools should not under any circumstances use resources promoted by organizations that take extreme political stances on matters. This is the case even if the material itself is not extreme, as the use of it could imply endorsement or support of the organization. Yes, so you can now no longer say 
this is what the Soviet Union said at whatever speech at whatever time, because that might be seen as an endorsement of the Soviet Union and everything it represented. Of course, that would make teaching history very difficult to do, as you couldn't actually discuss the history of, say, the Cold War? You know, that might be a little bit difficult to talk about now if you can't even reference things like that. It's all a very uh, nonsense. Now, the former Shadow Chancellor John McDonald said that this measure was inherently authoritarian. On this basis, it will be illegal to refer to large tracts of British history and politics, including the history of British socialism, the Labour Party, and trade unionism, all of which have at different times advocated the abolition of capitalism. This is another step in the culture war, and this drift towards extreme conservative authoritarianism is gaining pace and should worry anyone who believes that democracy requires freedom of speech and an educated populace. Yes, and that's a perfectly valid criticism to make of this. You're now no longer allowed to talk of British working class history because generally trade unionism, socialism, etc., are talking about the rights and the struggle of the working class. So basically, working class history is what you're not allowed to talk about because it might offend conservative sensibilities or the capitalist class. I, I, I think you know what I mean. Well, I mean, this is going to be dark days. I mean, I don't know how you're going to teach about Thomas Paine if uh, you're not allowed to talk about these things. So I, I thought it's really interesting. If anti-capitalism is an extremist position and capitalism is the diametrically opposed opposite idea, then wouldn't that make capitalism an extremist idea as well? But of course, the mistake I'm making here is that I'm trying to apply logic to something that is a simple measure of totalitarianism trying to control thought. What's interesting here is they're trying to erase history. We will not talk about these things because they did not happen. It's interesting. This is almost like V for Vendetta level nonsense. And I think that's a fair comparison considering that's it. Oh, 18, 1812 Overture? Okay, well, that's gone now because association with something that's not approved by the capitalist class. So yes, it is uh, very uh, interesting that, that this all uh, fits together so well. And what a perfect reflection this is of the uh, 1776 project in the United States, which attempts to completely whitewash history by erasing slavery and native genocide. You know, having those uh, conservatives in power, it's, it's uh, that, that's really something to just pretend history doesn't exist. But I mean, let's be honest here. They're trying to erase anything that would challenge the power of the capitalist class. I mean, this isn't even like anything that's really even anti-state. This is really anti-capitalist and comparing it to anti-Semitism. I mean, it's not like the Nazis were, uh, you know, capitalists or something, or that there's the long hidden history of the collaboration between the Nazi party and members of the royal family. But I'm guessing you're probably not allowed to talk about that either. So, and it's very interesting to finally, you know, put a, a punctuation point on this. Yeah, capitalism is freedom where you can free, you can be free to think anything. And then if and long as enough people agree with you by the laws of the free market of ideas, that makes it true. Like flat earth or vaccine conspiracies or QAnon or the NWO or any other kind of nonsense. So if you live in England... You better start buying up all the history books you can now because this is about to head into V for Vendetta territory where they're going to start destroying anything that would even question the basis of society or even its own actual physically existing history thereof. Reporting from Niagara Falls, Jason Unruh. And now in the Arts Express Writer's Corner.
Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I've been thinking a lot lately about the importance of the mail and uh, in conjunction with a poem called Writing to Aaron by Denise Levertov that I've been rereading. And, you know, of course, the mail is all important to us now because of the elections and so on. But it's also important because as we struggle for connection now so much, the mail becomes more important. I remember when I was a child, the mail was the most important thing in my life. I couldn't wait to run and see what was in the mail. But I'm also reminded in this time where we sort of have to sit and be thrown upon our own resources these days, that I haven't written a real letter for over 30 years. I mean, a, a real letter. I'm not talking about a, a condolence card or a thank you note or, or an email, not an email, but I'm talking about a real letter. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think about my son and the generations after mine and how they really don't have a sense of what letter writing is, that whole process. And it would be kind of hard to explain to them how a letter is not just a letter, but it's also its envelope and it's the enclosures, the clippings, the circled pieces of newspapers, uh, glitter stickers, ink smudges, uh, how you wrote the return address, the stamp. I used to have a friend who always put a stamp of the American flag upside down, and she would tell me, May Day, May Day, May Day. Or remember, sealed with a kiss, S-W-A-K, or S-W-A-L-C-A-K-W-S, which meant sealed with a lick because a kiss won't stick, and enclosing the little two-by-three photos from the amusement park where you all crowded into that little booth trying to get your head into the frame. And you scroll the little ID on the back of where you were at, Asbury Park or something like that, Coney Island. Well, I know what I'm talking about is nostalgia, and, but it's, it's more than that. And wh when I read that poem by Denise Levertov, writing to Aaron, it really reminds me of a whole lot more. Because letter writing is something very special. It's a whole rhythm of trust back and forth. And it's the framing of communication in in these bursts of captured time, even as the time is passing. And that's the thing. With letter writing, time passes. Because now we, we don't have any time, because we can access anyone, anytime, instantly. But back then, time existed, and it meant something in human terms. Waiting, for example. We knew that even as we were writing, that it wouldn't be received for days, maybe weeks. And who knows when we would get the reply to our comments, our bits of news, our declarations, our entreaties, our losses. So what to do in the meantime while waiting was a real issue, how different our lives were. Now our communication is nearly almost all in real time, Zoom, Skype, cell phone, text, email, and there's no anticipation anymore because what we see is what we get, though it's screen-mediated. Um, if not now, then never. But what a letter unmistakably reminds us of is this essential fact. A letter reminds us that there are gaps in our perception of the lives of others. We kind of see them as this... Uh, solid, continuing thing, but their people are changing every moment. And that's the hard thing to assimilate in any relationship, the fact of mutual change, that both of us are always changing, have changed. And this modern instant communication, it lulls us into a false familiarity, I feel, as if we know exactly who you are because we can see you this instant right now, and we can see you the next instant right now. But a letter changes that whole dynamic. When you're waiting for two weeks for a letter's reply and two weeks for the reply to the reply, then you start wondering whether the person on the other end is still the same. Maybe they've changed. Maybe they're, maybe they're not knowable anymore. Maybe there's something missing. Maybe there's something mysterious about that other human being, their soul inside there. Maybe you're not omniscient. In my wife's letter collection from her mother, there's a letter from her Austrian Jewish grandmother during World War II to her daughter who was living in Australia at the time. 
And the last letter in the collection, it reads, everyone in good health here. And I had to wonder how, how long before it made its way to Australia from Vienna. And, and I had to wonder how long before they realized there would be no more letters. That's kind of the subject of the poem of Denise Lebertov's writing to Aaron, which I read some years ago in a poetry group with some friends. And it's a wonderful poem. And in the poem, the narrator struggles to find a way to respond to a letter that she's taken too long to answer. I think it's three years in the poem. And the narrator understands that with each passing day, the gap between who they were and who they are, it's growing greater and greater every day. And in those letter-writing days, that awareness fostered in us a kind of responsibility. It's an obligation to answer in a timely manner. And if you didn't, there was the double problem of not knowing how to explain your tardiness and the fear that the person to whom you were responding to may have changed beyond all recognition. And for the more literary of us, there was still another fear. It was too easy for us to fall in love with our own writing. So at times we wrote to and for ourselves rather than to and for the person whose name we put on the envelope. So the delinquent letter writer has to develop methods of how to talk about that gap, how to talk about all that's occurred in the time that has passed, and equally, how to talk about what will happen until the next communication occurs. And in Denise Levertov's poem, she has the narrator explore different strategies to explain what's happened in that three years, how she's changed. So first, the, the narrator, the intermittent letter writer, considers, well, she'll just put the dry facts of change up front. But she has to reject that plan as inadequate because even though she can put forward the external facts, they don't account for the internal facts. Here's some lines from the poem, uh, quote, which beginning to begin with? Since I saw you last, the doctor has prescribed artificial tears, a renewable order. But that leaves out the real ones, <laughs> unquote. So then she considers, well, let's, let's take a different approach. Let's try a strictly chronological narrative. But too much time has passed. It's three years, and that would be inadequate. There's too much to tell in too little space. Quote, or chronological narrative. In the spring of 73, that summer, by then it was fall. All or nothing, and that would be nothing. Unquote. So the delinquent letter writer finds that that's too is inadequate, and she finally thinks, well, maybe she can bridge the gap by calling upon a shared memory, hoping that the recipients can fill in the rest. Quote, maybe I'll leave the whole story for you to imagine, telling you only, a year ago I said farewell to that poplar you will remember that gave us its open secret. Unquote. And there's, there's something in that shared memory that seems to satisfy her as the way to bridge the gap. Well, after reading this poem, I start thinking about how delinquent I was in letter writing 30 years after all. So I started to imagine myself writing a letter to a loved one. And I just thought about how I would be sitting at my desk writing a, writing a letter and this act of imagination, it sent me to a place, a consciousness that I hadn't been to in a very long time. I felt myself in this intimate place before I had even written a single word, and I rebelled. I just, I wanted to write an email. It requires so much less of me. A letter is an act of intimacy and truth, and I haven't the emotion anymore for that. And, and to see my own scrawl of a handwriting in ink on paper? No, that's, that's too naked. It's too unseemly at this age. I don't even write down a shopping list anymore. But what I can't deny is how excited my poetry friends, Connie, Evelyn, Teresa, and I 
all were after reading that Denise Levertov poem together. And we got talking about letters and the thrill of pages, double-sided, leaped through again and again, folded and refolded, stuck in pockets and books to take out on a windy, bus-waiting day, or, or found years later at the bottom of that untouched, stuck drawer, because I'm looking at your handwriting and I'm deciphering the distance and time that separates us but joins us as if some part of your presence were truly here in this paper, in this time, with these words, in this letter. The poem is Writing to Aaron by Denise Levertov. And this is your correspondent, Jack Shalom, for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. The music you just heard was the letter by the Box Tops and Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. The world won't get no better if we're just Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, go alone.